Yes, but we've changed over the centuries. Why shouldn't they? The once famous warrior race of Thals are now farmers. But the Daleks were teachers, weren't they, Tennessee? Yes, they were. And philosophers. Perhaps they are the warriors now. From the distance, the city looks as if they make science and invention their profession. It's a magical architecture. Perhaps we can exchange ideas with them, learn from them. Welcome to the Time Streams Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. And I'm Juliet. And today we're going to talk about the first four episodes of the second serial of Doctor Who, which is called The Daleks. <laughs> As I mentioned before, there are some people that refuse to call it that. They're... It gets silly in fandom sometimes where people are like, well, well, the people at the time actually referred to it as the mutants or some, you know, or the dead planets, the other one, which is the title of the first episode. And it, it gets kind of crazy sometimes about how people like get picky about stuff like that. But it says the Daleks on the DVD and everything from the BBC has called it the Daleks, you know, since I've been alive. So right. I'm going to call it the Daleks. I'm okay with uh, this. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, before we get started, Julia, I wanted to ask you, when we're watching these, do you watch them all together, or do you watch, like, an episode here, an episode there, until you've watched all the episodes? Um, sometimes I watch a couple episodes at a time, mm. but I usually watch one or two at a time. I don't usually watch all of them all at once. Okay. Do you find that that makes it easier? A little bit, mostly because I'm taking notes as I watch it. Sure. And I like to, like, make sure I get it all, my head all wrapped around everything I wanted to write down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my wife, she, uh, so, you know, when we first got together, I was like, oh, you should watch Doctor Who, and, you know, we actually watched some later ones first, but then I was like, let's go back to the beginning and watch it from, a, from the beginning, and so she had a really hard time, but then that's the thing, I would, like, try to watch, like, the whole thing, because when I was a kid, when I was watching it on PBS, they edited them all together, so there'd be no cliffhangers or anything. It would be like this whole storyline is like a single movie, and so that's how I'm used to watching it. I'll just watch it all the way through. Mm -hmm. But I started doing like she would like end up getting up and like doing other things or whatever, <laughs> and so what I started doing was doing just like one episode, but like doing it more frequently. Like we'd do it like one a night or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she actually was like, I I like this a lot more and then like the cliffhangers actually mean something when you watch it that way and I've heard some other people say that too so I was just kind of curious about you know how you were watching it and how you felt about it because I realized that pacing wise it's not the same or as action-packed as what the TV's like now and so you know it, it can be a little uh, more difficult but 
it was made to be something that people didn't watch all in one night. It was supposed to be a thing that you watch and then you next week you watch the next part. I mean, I grew up on stuff like that. I grew up on stuff like MASH and things like that where it was short episodes. They didn't always mm-hmm. have cliffhangers, but sometimes they did. Mm-hmm. So this it doesn't bother me to watch something that's, you know, 25 minutes, which throws me every time I watch one of these episodes. I'm like, oh my God, it's so short. <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like the old Batman series. I mean, not in tone at all, but, you know, it's like the old Batman with Adam West where it's like a 25-minute episode and then it's, will the Cape Crusader get out of this dangerous situation? You know, come back next time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, but yeah, so um, I totally did this the wrong way around. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so, so... Because we talked before we started recording. Uh, how are you doing, Julia? <laughs> I am doing well. I am self-quarantining, self-social distancing, as we're all supposed to do. We started working from home last week. Mm. It's been a bit rough. Not everybody knows. My 16-year-old cat passed away two Sundays ago. Yeah. And uh, so last week was very, very difficult for me. I'm slowly getting better at not seeing him around the corners. Because he was my buddy whenever we'd watch TV and settle in for episodes. Mm. He was my cuddle bug for that stuff. So it's very weird not to have him for it. But I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm, I'm working. That's the one thing I've got. I actually still have a job. So I'm very, very grateful right now. Yeah. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I mean, like you, I still have my job, even though we're having some, you know, stuff now. Like, we're going to have two weeks where of furlough, so we don't work, but we don't get paid either. But, you know, at least it's not a long-term thing, although they did let a few people go, too, so that's kind of worrying. It's just a little stressful because uh, the kids are home, and so I'm basically being teacher plus trying to work because my wife still has to go out to her job. She works retail in a quote-unquote essential service right. <laughs> at Joanne Fabrics. Go figure. I mean, and it's essential to some people. That's true. Well, I mean, I kind of get at some level that people need something to do, you know, while they're stuck in their home. But the reason why they're considered essential is because they're selling masks, which is, you know, definitely something that is a good thing, you know, right. for people to have. But yeah, I mean, otherwise, just trying to... Well, I'm hoping actually next week, because that'll be my first furlough week, is I'll get caught up on some things. I have this huge list of things that I want to do for me. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> I've started keeping a list just because it was like, I, I forget all the things that I want to do. So I just started writing them down every time I think about them. So yeah, so besides doing this podcast, you know, just doing, you know, all the other things that I've wanted to do for a long time and just haven't had the time to do it. So hopefully, hopefully I'll get to cross quite a few things off that list, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's get to talking about our episodes. So episode one is called The Dead Planet, and it picks up where the last one left off, where they arrive and they see a forest through the scanner, and as they all walk out, suddenly the radiation counter goes from normal to danger. And I'm over here yelling that it's going to kill you, and I'm very grateful (laughs) that there's no proto-molecule here, which people who've watched The Expanse will understand. Yeah, so what I didn't get, though, is this thing starts flashing, and I'm like, how are they walking in and out of that room, and no one notices, like, out of the corner of their eye, hey, something's flashing over here, what is that? (laughs) I imagine that there's things flashing on the TARDIS all the time, and they don't even pay attention at this point, at least the Doctor doesn't. (laughs) It could be. It could be. 
But yeah, so then they go out and they notice that there are some strange things about this jungle. Nothing's moving, even though there's a breeze. It smells kind of like burned and, and there ash, there's ashes all over the uh, ground instead of like soil. And they, they basically find out that what it is, it's a petrified forest. Right, like there was some serious nuclear devastation that happened here. And I'm kind of intrigued by that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think one of the things that the show does in this time period is the setup is always really strong because they give everyone time to explore and try to work out what is the situation that we've ended up in, you know, what's going on out here. So, yeah, I really like that part of it, too. And then Barbara and Ian are talking about the fact that it doesn't look like Earth. They're a little worried about it. And it's like, but we better stay near the doctor because, you know, if something happens to him, we're stuck and that would be really bad. Oh, my gosh. Wasn't that where Barbara said that line? Don't you think he deserves to have something happen to him? And I'm, <laughs> I was like, whoa, Barbara. Yeah. And then Susan finds a flower, mm-hmm. and the doctor doesn't care about that flower. Ian seems to care about the flower. Right. And, after, and then she picks it. It's the only flower she's seen, and she picks this flower. I'm like, awesome. And then suddenly we find out, no, Ian doesn't care at all about that flower. <laughs> well, it was more of, yeah, he was trying to help her get it out, and he was like, well, it would be brittle, because it's, you know, been turned to stone, and let's, you know, be really careful. But then Barbara screams. <laughs> And so Ian's just, like, basically throws it into Susan's hand and it smashes. And then he goes over to Barbara. And that's because Barbara sees this thing that looks like this spiky armadillo. It looked really cool. And that was one of my notes I couldn't figure out because I saw in my notes, can I have one of those for my house? And I'm going, what in the world was I talking? Oh, the metal animal that I just wrote above it. Yeah. (laughs) It looked really cool. I mean, I like the kind of idea of it. I mean, the doctor makes a lot of assumptions about it just from, like, you know, just being like, well, it's metal. It probably used magnetism to pull its prey. I like that idea. I mean, even though he, like, has no reason to say that that's what it is. Mm -hmm. I I like that idea of a metal animal that, like, attracts its prey with magnetism. I wish we actually saw one of those moving around. It would be really cool. No. So, yeah, and that's pretty much when they figure out that they're, they're definitely not on Earth. And yeah, and then that's where the doctor talks about the fact that they left too quickly from the caveman times, and so he had no time to make any kind of calculations, and so basically it was a random trip in the TARDIS to wherever they were going to go. So we're getting a little bit of an explanation as to why they're not going where they need to go. I did notice something cool, and it was something I was interested to start looking at, is the difference between the first companions and the ones that I started watching Mm -hmm. with, like Rose. Like, Rose just, like, ran into the TARDIS. She was all excited about traveling. Time travel, space travel, she didn't care. But, man, Barbara is so homesick, and it makes me sad. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. In this point, like, the Doctor isn't, like, the kind of superhero that he becomes later. No, he's a crotchety old man in this. (laughs) Right. And the whole situation is presented as, you know, this isn't, like, a fun adventure. This is, like, true danger. You know, these are people that have been swept up from everything they know and brought to these places that are, you know, horrible and, you know, there's all this, you know, stuff around them that they don't understand. And I mean, I think they play that really well of the whole idea of because they don't know that they'll ever get home. Right. And so I really like that. I mean, it feels very real, feels very authentic. What I like from that scene, though, is when she says that she has nothing to rely on and Ian says there's me yeah and i'm like oh there's your otp (laughs) that's right 
don't. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know, you notice he was like, I don't care about this flowers. And Barbara <laughs> screamed, so, you know. Oh, yeah. I noticed that throughout this entire four-episode section that it was all about making sure Barbara was okay. Right. <laughs> I can see that. And yeah, and so yeah, Susan explains a little more about how, like, if they know exactly where they are in time and space, they're computers on the TARDIS that can take them wherever they want to go, but it's because it's basically uh, doesn't know where it is, it can't take them anywhere specific. Mm-hmm. And that's where Ian yells at them all to come, and they come out and they see the city in the distance. Oh, yeah, now that was cool. I was like, what is that? Yeah. Oh, it's a city? Wait, I know the name of this episode. Did the Daleks build that? <laughs> yeah, I actually think that effect works really well, too, where they do, like, the sort of, like, forced perspective of look, making the city look like it's in the distance and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and I really like that. I think it worked really well. And I love those glasses the doctor pulls out. I don't know if you noticed, oh, but yeah. they like have binocular type things on the end. Of, but they have they look like glasses where they hook over your ears and everything. But it's like <laughs> I was noticing those; those were so cool. Yeah, I really like that look. And he is so ready to explore that, and he's like, "Well, fine." And, and they're like, "No, we need to get back." And then the doctor's like, "No, it's cool. I'm just gonna go just check this out on my own." And my note there is in all caps: "Are you honestly letting him go off on his own again?" <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Like the last story didn't let you really see this side of the doctor too much. I mean. He does, like, originally when they get out and want to look at some soil samples or whatever, but he gets captured right away, and so you don't get to see this. But, like, that's part of this. Yeah, he's a cranky old man and everything, but he really loves the idea of exploring. Like, this is, he is a true scientist. He wants to go out there. He wants to find out what's going on and understand everything. And so you get a little more of the motivation for his character. With How that. has he survived this long? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing I always wonder, too, because it's like, you know, Susan's not all that helpful, so, you know. (laughs) And I like Susan, it's just, she acts very much like a true kid, right? Not like Mm -hmm. she has any skills that would be helpful with that kind of dangerous stuff. Oh, I do want to give the composers credit, though. The music is especially creepy as we pan away from that, like, city. I I was just, like, actually getting a little bit of chill, so, like, that's beautiful. Yeah, the music, especially in the 60s Doctor Who, is somewhat experimental, and I I like some of the choices that they made. And this particular score for the Daleks actually gets reused a few times. Nice. Yeah, because it is so iconic. So, yeah, Susan finds another flower when they're going back to the TARDIS. Because it's getting dark, so they're like, well, Doctor, it doesn't matter right now. We're going to go back. And once she picks it up, she feels a tap on her shoulder, and she freaks out. Yep, I actually have Susan is freaking out again. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody believes her. And so the Doctor uh, talks to Barbara about talking to Susan. And I actually kind of like how that scene's played where the doctor seems like so embarrassed at having to ask for Barbara's help. Mm-hmm. That also feels very real to me of this older guy who's like, I don't know how to relate to the young people, but <laughs> I feel like I should be able to, you know? It's like, she's a girl, she has emotions, you're a girl, you have emotions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess there's some of that in there too. <laughs> But then I also really like the scene where, like, Ian is following the Doctor around because the Doctor is just, like, jotting things down in a notebook as he's looking at different things on the TARDIS. And Ian's like, Doctor, I have no idea how you make any sense of it. And the Doctor's just like, quite right, quite right. That's because he doesn't. (laughs) He's just throwing, like, some low-key shade right at Ian. Mm Mm-hmm. But, yeah, then they, um... 
you know, Ian mentions that he's hungry, and the doctor's like, oh, what a great idea, and so he just dashes off. And so they go to the TARDIS food machine. It looked like Willy Wonka's inventing room. (laughs) It was so cool. (laughs) And I kind of like the idea of the, you know, flavors are like colors. And so all you need to do is know like what flavor you want. And if you punch in the right combination, you can get something that even though it doesn't look like the food you want, it'll taste like that. Right. So yeah, Ian gets his bacon and eggs and I can't remember what everyone else was eating. But I do remember the bacon and eggs just because I like, you know, he's like, one bites bacon, one bites. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, Barbara's starting to get a headache. It's a little foreshadowing. Oh yeah, I was like, Barbara, it's radiation sickness. It's so sad. You should already be dead. And then they hear the tapping outside. Oh yeah, that was, that's freaky. And no one apologizes to Susan at all. <laughs> no, no, she didn't make it up. There's actually something out there. Yeah, but when they check outside, they don't see anything. And so it's like, okay, well. Then Ian and Barbara are like, all right, let's let's, just let's leave. You know, this place is creepy. We don't know what's going on. It's probably dangerous. And the doctor's arguing with them. But then he's like, okay, fine. (laughs) And then the TARDIS starts up, but then it doesn't sound quite right. Right. Well, you know, that's another one of those scenes, though, where I'm just like, okay. I mean, come on. You couldn't have, like, figured out a way to make this a little more low-key. Because it's like, (laughs) the doctor just, like, ducks under the console. And they don't see him pull something out, but it's right. like they see him duck down and then he stands back up and suddenly it starts shaking and making weird noises. And it's like, I mean, how are they supposed to know that that's not normal? Yeah, I guess. I mean, Susan at least should be like, wait a minute. <laughs> she knows her gra- She knows her grandfather doesn't know what he's doing. No, that's true. Except for this moment, because, wow, I, you know, he's. He, he pulls out the thing. He says, oh, my gosh, this is why the TARDIS isn't working. It, it needs mercury. And I was like, wait a second. The doctor did this just to be able to get them to explore the city. Because mm-hmm. he is way too excited about having to go explore that city mm-hmm. looking for mercury. <laughs> you are one manipulative fellow. Uh-huh, he is. And, yeah, so he says, like, oh, no, we don't have any spares. So, you know, we're going to. And then he makes Ian suggest it because he's like, oh, yeah, no, we haven't needed it. And Ian's (laughs) like, well, I guess we'll have to check the city. Oh, that's right. I didn't think of that. Yes, let's check the city. (laughs) And the doctor's hair even mirrors his excitement because it is epic in that scene. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, this whole story, as things get worse and worse and they get sicker and sicker, like his hair starts becoming like a lot more like crazy. That was actually a wig. Oh, gosh. That he was wearing. Yeah. He was really only in his 50s. He was just playing a character that was a lot older. Okay. Yeah. So they find the box, uh, metal box, when they leave the TARDIS. Why did they poke it with a stick? <laughs> he poked it with a stick. Well, Barbara says, I mean, it's, it's a, it, you, you, there's a line where she says, be careful, it might go off. So, like, Barbara, like, instantly assumes it's a bomb. But my thing is, if it's a bomb, Ian, I'm sorry. If you pick up a stick and, like, stand, like, maybe gives you, like, a couple more feet, you know, that's not going to make a difference. I couldn't stop laughing. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing is everybody else just stands, like, a few feet further back from that. So it's like, right? I don't think, I mean, you guys should go back in the TARDIS, at least, and let Ian poke it with the stick. But yeah, so it's got some glass vials in it. They have no idea what it is. So they're like, okay, we'll just put this in the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. And then, oh God, Susan comes out and she says that she's packed food for the day. And Yen's like, well, it should only take us a few hours, right? And I'm like, yeah, you're going to explore a whole city mm-hmm. <laughs> to find Mercury. 
and it's just going to take a few hours because, of course, it'll just be lying out. Mercury's always laying around somewhere. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Maybe he played with some Mercury when he was a kid, and that might explain some things. It really would. <laughs> So yeah, they go down to the city, the doctor's starting to feel really weak, so he has to sit down and rest for a bit. I'm actually surprised that he wouldn't have, I I guess he's never been around that kind of radiation, but I just felt like in all of those many, many years, he would kind of have an inkling of what radiation sickness would feel like. Yeah, you'd think. And shouldn't they be having some other symptoms by now, because that Geiger counter was off the charts. (laughs) Right. Well, who knows how Gallifrey and Geiger counters are <laughs> calibrated and how much it really is. But yeah, they, they make my absolute favorite decision, and that's to split up. Oh yeah! Never separate the party! <laughs> Ian has obviously <laughs> never played any sort of cooperative game. Never in his life. Yes. <laughs> like why why would you split up in a place completely even if you do think everyone is dead there's nobody here it's completely uninhabited there could be all kinds of problems from you know getting lost to you know something's old and it collapses on you or whatever you know buddy system people right (laughs) so they're just wandering around they find out that the doors will open if you like white swipe your hand across these little circular things next to the doors so they're going through And one of the things that I like that I think was really good about the design was that the doors don't look like ordinary doors. Mm -mm, They're very weirdly shaped. Mm -hmm. They have like a sort of rounded design to them. And it's more trying to show like, hey, this is like an alien kind of creature that uses this. So I thought that was a nice touch. I also have to give kudos to the cinematographer. There was one camera angle. I think it's on Barbara where she was walking down the hallway. And I'm sorry, my cat just jumped by the microphone. <laughs> That's fine. The camera angle is from the ground almost looking up mm-hmm. and at a at a tilted angle. And it just felt even more alien. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was noticing that too. Well, and also I think to kind of show like Barbara how unsettled she was that everything was kind of like off kilter. So yeah, that was that was really well done. What didn't work for me in those shots was the forced perspective on the hallway. Mm-hmm. Where the hallway was only like a certain length, but then they tried to paint the wall so that it looked like the hallway went much further back. But the yeah. angle is wrong. Okay, so it wasn't just me thinking it looked weird. Yeah, it was the angle was wrong so that it looks like the hallway suddenly like goes up like a ramp or something and so yeah it was very obvious what that was so yeah barbara's like going through different twists and turns and we cut back to ian who's met back up with the doctor and susan after you know the time that they agreed to but barbara's not coming and so they're starting to get worried and then we cut back to barbara and she gets into an elevator that goes down and she's still wandering around and then finally we see you know she backs away from something that the camera is seeing from the perspective of whatever she's backing away from, and you just see a plunger advancing on her as she screams. <laughs> you wouldn't think the plunger would be so terrifying, but that stupid camera angle, and, and then Barbara's just selling it. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, Jack Jacqueline Hill, the actress, she does a really great job with that. And this is the thing. This episode right here is the one that puts Doctor Who on the map. Because those first four, they kind of came, they kind of went, you know, okay, whatever. But this is what made the show popular. Because suddenly, like, if you look at the viewing figures that they have, like, Mm -hmm. for each episode of the storyline, they go up. Oh, wow. 
because you know there people are talking to each other and saying hey you got to check out doctor who there's this weird stuff going on and apparently like kids were you know like daddy daddy like you know i don't know what that was but you know like call the b you know and so like parents are calling the bbc saying like my kids will not sleep until they know what the you know <laughs> in the world was terrorizing barbara and so the show instantly becomes a hit wow just from one camera angle and a plunger. Right. <laughs> it just shows kind of the power of imagination, I think, mm-hmm. part of it, because you you didn't see it, you know, and I th- almost feel like if people saw the Dalek right away, they would probably think it was kind of silly looking, but they give it to you from Barbara's point of view, the reaction. And so you think it's a much scarier thing than it really is. I love it. Yeah. And the funny thing was they almost didn't do this one because the guy, the head of drama at the BBC who came up with the idea for Doctor Who, his number one rule was, I don't want any bug-eyed monsters. You know, because that was, you know, the movies at the time, you know, most of the sci-fi movies, they just had some guy in a rubber suit with bug eyes or whatever. He's like, I want this to be like real sci-fi. I don't want this to be, you know, like some sort of creature feature kind of thing. And when he saw the script for this, he said, this is a bug-eyed monster. What are you doing? I said, no bug-eyed monsters. <laughs> and the pro- the thing was, basically, they didn't have anything else ready to go. And so the producer, she says, like, I argued with him about it, but, like, the thing that actually got him to back down was just that we didn't have anything else that was ready. And, of course, then when the show became super popular, when this was airing, she says that, you know, he basically told her, okay, you obviously know what you're doing better than I do, so, (laughs) you know, hands off. I mean, technically it wasn't a bug-eyed monster. (laughs) Well, I know, but I mean, kind of, I think he thought that it was going to be more of a creature feature kind of thing. You you know what I'm talking about, that kind of, you know, they came from outer space kind of, you know, stuff. Mm -hmm. The Daleks definitely have a lot more going on than a lot of those old, you know, movies. You know, I watched some of those when I was a kid, and I've seen a lot more of them with Mystery Science Theater. (laughs) (laughs) Love that show. But the monsters don't have any personality in a lot of those, and definitely the Daleks have personality. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So then we get on to episode two, The Survivors. Mm -hmm. So as Ian and the Doctor are looking for Barbara, they do find a lab. I thought the lab was hilarious because everything is, like, analog with, like, dials and stuff on it. Which, how does a Dalek use all that? I mean... (laughs) Well, and if they're this advanced race that are living inside these basically mobile tanks and, you know, have all these sensors and everything, it's like, why why do you have readouts like an ink drum and paper, you know? Why isn't it all digital? So, yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. Also, isn't this where the doctor reveals that he did this on purpose? Yes, because they find, first they find the Geiger counter. And then they realize that, oh crap, we're walking around this place that's like full of radiation. And then the doctor admits, because he says like, we're going to have to leave right away. And Ian says, well, we have to find the mercury first. And then the doctor's like, well, actually, (laughs) there's nothing wrong with the fluid link in the first place. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Ian's not really amused by that at all. And the doctor's just like, well, we can't find Barbara. I guess we got to (laughs) go. And Ian, again, we're not leaving without Barbara. 
Uh-huh. And since the doctor actually handed him the fluid link when he was saying that it was fine, Ian basically says, no, because I'm going to hold on to the fluid. You know, you guys can go back to the TARDIS, but I'm just going to hold on to the fluid until I find Barbara. So they realize that they're going to have to look for her. But that doesn't really matter, because as soon as they walk out of the lab, they are surrounded by the dogs. Oh my gosh, I was so excited. They looked and sounded exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, there have been some like, slight tweaks to the design, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the same thing today as it was back then. Okay, that voice gives me chills. Like, multi-layered mm. voices make me all shivery and, like, bleh, nightmare fuel. The Daleks, I was just so glad that they sounded just the same. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that the writer really wanted, was he didn't want them in any way to seem human. So, like, the design is completely informed by that. Those don't look like arms. They don't walk. You know, I don't know if you ever saw, like, the old Lost in Space, but the robot that they had, if it was ever a shot where it just showed the top of the robot, because it was, like, so difficult to put those, like, wheeled legs on it, mm -hmm. he would just walk, and you would see him sort of bebop. It was obvious he was walking, like, the guy's legs were out underneath, you know, and he was just walking. And only in, like, long shots where he was wearing the legs with wheels on the bottom would you see him, like, actually right. glide across. But the Daleks... You know, they're short, so it doesn't look like, you know, how's an actor, you know, get it, they're sitting. But, you know, like, if you're just looking at it, it doesn't look like a human shape. You got the arms that look weird. And then with the voice, you make it sound completely, you know, by making it electronic, by you know, a modulator that basically turns off and on really fast, so uh -huh. the voice is going out. And then there's nothing human about it. Oh, no, they're, they're still scary to me. So yeah, then Ian tries to run, and the Daleks fire, and they paralyze his legs. Yeah, that was different. I'm used to the Daleks just basically shooting and you're dead, so mm -hmm. that half paralyzation was interesting. Yeah, so I mean, obviously this is the first time we're seeing the Daleks, so their personality and everything isn't quite set. There's also some... As with everything with Doctor Who, there's always debate and discussion about the order that things happen in. Because if you're not given a date... There are certain things in Doctor Who where it's like, wait, because the Doctor travels in time, does this happen before this, or does this happen before this? And so, mm -hmm. there are questions about, are these Daleks like a different group of Daleks, or, you know, are they the same ones we see in other stories? Or, you know, there's all kinds of, like, debate about that. But yeah, they paralyze Ian instead of killing him. Oh yeah, he lets us know at every moment that he can't use his legs. I can't tell you how many, if there had been a drinking game that I had, had set up to that, I would have been gone after that scene. Yeah, he does bring it up a few times. I can't use my legs! <laughs> but then they take them to a cell where they've already taken Barbara. And the part about that that made me kind of go, what? Was that there's like this bed type slab there. And I'm like, why Why do Daleks need beds? Mm -hmm. That was very odd. <laughs> it's like they were expecting people Maybe they were hoping for visitors? I don't know. But I think this is about where I started wondering, is this the Dalek homeworld? Because I don't know, honestly. I, I know that it's been mentioned in New Who, but I'm not actually positive that I re recall what episode or if I've even technically gotten to the right episodes. But I was like, is this, is this their homeworld? Oh my gosh. Yep, this is their homeworld. Ah! <laughs> Yeah, and so Barbara, because they've been talking about them as robots, but Barbara's the one that says, but are they robots? Or do you think maybe there's something inside? 
And then they all kind of look at each other like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Barbara's not dumb. No, no, she's not. She's not. And Ian tells her about the radiation and all that stuff, so they all get caught up on the same information. And then we get some Daleks just talking to each other, and they're talking about how radiation levels are going down, and they think that the, you know, the people from the TARDIS are Thals. Yeah, I didn't hear that right. I, I, when I first heard it, it took me a few listenings of them saying the word. At first, I thought they were saying sows, and I was like, as in female cows. <laughs> okay, and then I was like, oh, Thals, Thals. I just can't hear. It's cool. Yeah, well, my wife has a hard time with Daleks, like, understanding what they're saying. So I think part of, you know, I, I can totally understand that. I also watch everything with subtitles on. Just ah. because I'm, I, after watching anime for so many years, it just feels natural <laughs> to have subtitles on all the time. Right. So that helps me when I can't hear something straight. Although I will say, on the Doctor Who DVDs, I think they're just having somebody type up the subtitles by ear rather than giving them scripts, because there are several times when what the person types is not what they're saying. Oh, man. <laughs> like, you know how the doctor calls Barbara Miss Wright? Mm-hmm. There are times where the subtitler writes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> when he says Miss Wright. Wow. <laughs> like, that's not what he said at all. I can sort of understand why somebody might have heard that if they're just listening by ear, but by context, you should know that that wasn't right. So anyway, just a note for anyone who might be watching with their DVDs that their, you know, subtitles aren't completely right. <laughs> but yeah, then the dogs are wondering why are they sick because if thals are around, then they must have some sort of a drug or something that they've been using to stay alive. And so then they bring in the doctor and the doctor's like, I'm not a thaw. What are you talking about? And once they say, you know, something about anti-radiation drugs, the doctor suddenly puts two and two together and is like, oh, maybe that's the thing we put in the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. And he suggests that they let one of them go because the Daleks say they can't leave the city. So he says, we'll let one of us go. We'll bring it back and you can hold the rest of us. And the Daleks agree. Now, here's the thing. I'm used to new Daleks. So when they're mm -hmm. like, we can't. They can't leave the city. I'm like, why can't they leave the city? I mean, they can just go wherever they want. I've seen it happen. Mm -hmm. I find out why later. Yep. And, yeah, then we go back to Ian, who's reminding us that he's paralyzed because Susan and Barbara are trying to help him walk. <laughs> and Susan mentions that the radiation is affecting her less than the others. The doctor tells them everything he learned about the, from the Daleks. And Ian's like, well, I need to be the one that goes. But he can't walk yet. And so he's like, well, just give me a few hours and I'll be able to go. And that Susan's arguing with him and says that the TARDIS lock has 21 different positions. Uh -huh. And if you put it in any but the right position, it'll cause the lock to melt. Yeah, that's crazy. That is crazy. <laughs> that never comes up again. <laughs> wow, that's the only time that's ever mentioned. I mean, I know the TARDIS has a key. I've seen it. Right. Well, I mean, in, in later stuff in New Who, the companions use the key, and there's no problems. There's no, oh, God, it's too complicated kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, there is an in-canon explanation for why it's never brought up again, but I'll mention that when we get to it. Okay. But it's something where I think the people planned, like, oh, this is the explanation why we don't bring this up again. It's something, though, that happens that it's then like, oh, this could be why this isn't this way anymore. So those of us who go back and watch the episodes trying to explain things, that's, you know, it's one of those scenes. 
Oh man, I've got to also mention the doctor has no fashion sense whatsoever. I mean, he's got a striped vest and plaid pants. Really? Really? <laughs> okay, if we're going to talk about fashion, and maybe this was normal back then, but it just was like blowing my mind. I'm looking at Barbara and, the, you know, some of the camera angles, have, you know, her back is turned and I'm like, is that, does that button up in the back? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so That's I'm a thing. Just like... Yeah, because, I mean, like, zippers I can understand, but, like, a button-up in the back? Yeah. Like, how do you possibly do that unless you're living with somebody? Because, I don't know, I don't, I can't see myself, like, buttoning up. She's secretly a contortionist. I guess. <laughs> okay, I wasn't going to bring that up, but it is something <laughs> that I noticed. I was like, how does that, how do you do that? <laughs> so, yeah, the doctor tells them that... There was a war on this planet. It's called Scaro. Yeah, that was the name I did recognize when he actually says the name. Yeah. Terry Nation, the writer for this, like, tends to use names that are a little on the nose. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll come back to that later. But, yeah, it's it's Scaro because it's like a scarred world from all the war. But, yeah, and so the Daleks retreated into their city and they have these travel machines that they use to get around. And he said that that was 500 years ago. That seems a little quick <laughs> yeah. for mutations and getting to this sort of advanced stage. But all right, we'll go with it. But then the Daleks basically say, all right, somebody's got to go. And so Susan's the only one who can, so she's forced to go. Also, when the Daleks are all having their little conference together and just they're, they've got all these plungers facing each other in this little little group. And I'm just like, that looks so wrong and I can't explain why. <laughs> I, you know, I realized that it was something cheap. I still question why a plunger. <laughs> it was what? A plunger and a beater. Yeah, an egg whisk. And if you look at the early design, like, you know, the stuff that the, the, the designer sketched out, there were a lot of concepts. I mean, there was one where the Daleks were actually going to be people on bikes inside, but that was going to be too big. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to have, when they had such a small studio, they didn't want that in there. But there were also like the, there was also a concept for a Dalek that actually looked more like R two D two, and it was going to have like a clawed hand instead of a suction cup. And I'm like, the clawed hand seems to make a lot more sense. It dies. I don't know why they didn't go with that. Maybe because the plungers were just easier and cheaper. Yeah, and also I mean, it goes back to the you know even a clawed hand looks somewhat vaguely like a human hand, and if you're really trying to go alien. <laughs> You know, plunger like, plunger hand i mean that's you're not that doesn't look like a human hand at all it did become iconic and i've met daleks and they were scary like they're my favorite who villains okay well there's a reason why they've been around for a while <laughs> so yeah then we cut to the dust again and they're like yeah should we let the people take the drugs when they come back and they're like nah <laughs> we'll just keep them for ourselves right very nice but yeah, and then we're back to seeing how sick they're all getting, and Ian says that they feel so awful that, like, even if the Daleks left the door open, they wouldn't be able to leave. And then we go to Susan's jungle scene. <laughs> she runs so terribly. Oh my gosh, it's just painful to watch. Well, I mean, the problem is that their set is only, like, you know, a few feet long, and she's got to sell it as if she's running through this, like, huge forest. And so... I mean, and she does. Her head's <laughs> flying everywhere, arms up in the air. 
So she's basically running in place while they have a like, background that like spins. So it looks like there's all this scenery like going by, but it's really just like a big circle that they're just spinning. It was so terrible. <laughs> and then they sometimes cut to a camera just zooming in like on this one particular tree. So it looks like she's running towards it. <laughs> it's a little jarring. <laughs> But she does see something moving a few times, like, between the trees, and so that freaks her out, and she keeps running even faster, and she gets to the TARDIS. So she goes inside, and this is where I think she does a good job with the, you know, like, with the acting, because you can tell, like, the tension just leaves her when she goes inside the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. She is just like, oh, I'm safe. And she goes and she picks up the, you know, the metal box, but then she hears Ian's voice. They have like a playback of what Ian was telling her before she left, which is straight there, straight back. And so then she like, you know, hesitantly turns to, you know, opens the doors and goes to leave. And then there's this lightning strike just as she's almost left and she jumps back before she keeps going and i just thought that she performed really well that she was showing like susan is scared she does not want to do this but she knows she has to oh yeah there was one moment when she was still in the tardis before she opened the doors again i was like oh my gosh is she gonna go back (laughs) good (laughs) sorry ian and barbara and grandfather right (laughs) oh the doctor might have (laughs) she had been able to come back even like, nope, I'm good, fine, we're going. No. So, I mean, this episode, it's got some interesting stuff in it, because when you think about it, you know, with this coming out in, in 1963, they're not far off from World War II. The people making the show, they've lived through World War II in some fashion or other. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this idea of the over, like, the looming threat of the nuclear war and what would things be like after that. And even though it's not quite clear yet if the Daleks are really evil or what they are, you know, you got the Daleks as sort of like your stand-in Nazi kind of characters, so... You're starting to get, like, sort of, like, the allegory here of what... (laughs) What are we talking about? Yeah, I can see it. So then we're into episode three, which is The Escape. (laughs) So dramatic. So, yeah, as soon as Susan leaves the TARDIS, she sees this guy. And the way that they shoot it, he looks huge. He does. I thought he was, like, a giant... And then I realized he was standing on something, like a hill or something. Right. But you've got Susan, because Susan instantly falls backwards, so she's on her rear looking up. And then they shoot with the camera from the bottom shooting up. So this guy looks gigantic. I totally thought that was the mutation was that they were suddenly just massive people. Yeah. Instead, it means that they all look like the Aryan dream of the perfect person. Oh, yeah. I comment on that later. (laughs) They're all blonde haired. And, you know, if it was color, I'm sure they'd all be blue eyed. But. Yeah, so, like, he looks afraid, but then he takes his coat off, and you see that what looked like he had, like, weird skin or whatever is really, like, this coat that he's wearing. These weird rubber coats (laughs) that they have. So strange. Yeah. And I want to know how this tribe of nomad people can make these rubber coats. Oh, don't even get me started on their outfits. I go into that later. (laughs) Okay. But yeah, she basically sees that he just look a big, strong man. So then suddenly Susan is all right with this guy. Uh, (laughs) And so she tells him about the fact that she's got friends that are being held in the city and that the Daleks seem to want the drugs. And so he introduces himself. He's Aladon. And he tells her, well, I'll give you another thing of drugs and you try to hide that. 
Although I'm trying to wonder, looking at Susan's outfit, which has, like, no pockets, <laughs> it's just, like, pants and, like, a shirt. It's like, where is she going to hide these things that are, like, a foot long and, like, six inches thick on her body that the Daleks won't be like? <laughs> Man, I wish. I wish I could say that, you know, nowadays women could hide that, but we still have no pockets. It's, mm. it's cool. Yeah, although I don't think a pocket would have helped with that thing anyway, because nope. it's quite big. <laughs> I mean, she might have been able to hide it in her hair. She does have some good volume on that hair. <laughs> I don't know. Did I tell you this, that her hair was actually styled by Vidal Sassoon? You did. <laughs> Fun fact, kids. <laughs> she brings it up in the DVD commentary, which is the only way I know it. But yeah, like, <laughs> by famed stylist Vidal Sassoon. So we don't actually see her hide it on her. We only hear about it later after she's there, after she's back. So I, they leave that to our imagination where she put it. <laughs> but I love how they go into some more detail about everything, about how they and this other race, I can't remember the name of the other race, dolls? Is that what, that what they called them? The Thals and the something else. Well, yeah, the Thals and, and yeah, but the Daleks used to be called the Dolls, just D-A-L-S. That's what I thought. Yeah. So they, like, hated each other, they killed each other, but apparently the Dolls were originally, like, teachers and philosophers? Yeah, I found that kind of weird, because you would think about it, like, normally in a war, it's like two countries, right? So just, you know, different ideologies or whatever, they're fighting each other, but they almost made it seem like it was some sort of, like, a revolution of the soldiers versus the scientists and philosophers. Which, in this modern, you know, in our modern times, that actually has a whole different sort of connotation about it. You know, you think about today when people are calling so much into question that scientists say and whatnot. And it's like, are we near that today? I actually thought that was horribly appropriate and applicable to today. Right. But this was also the section, man, where I was just staring at their outfits going, first off, this is very impractical. <laughs> those are very clean outfits. And where did you even find the stuff to make those outfits in this weird petrified forest? <laughs> well, they did say they came from somewhere else and it actually hiked here over, you know, a, a good period of time. So maybe where they're from, it's a little bit better. Oh, my God. It was like bathing suits with a clear robe over the top for some of these women. I don't even know. <laughs> well, all right. You didn't mention the pants, which I thought is what you were going to go to. The pants all have these like oval holes cut down the sides of them. Do you know what it reminded me of? The outfit, specifically Riker's outfit in season one of Next Generation on that planet, Angel One, that was ruled by the women, and he wore that most ridiculous, I don't even get, you know, even Tasha's laughing at it. Yes, yes. But that's what it was reminding me of, was the impracticality of that. Well, yes, all the men are showing their chests off. I mean, it's basically <laughs> like, it's these two little things that cover down, like, the sort of nipple area. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the middle is wide open and you can see their chests and yeah it's yeah i mean the women are kind of scantily clad too and some like they you know their legs are, are very exposed and everything but yeah it's definitely not practical if you're like a tribe of nomadic people oh my gosh it was stuck <laughs> I, I mean very few things are cracking me up i mean between the poking the box with a stick and these outfits i was just dying so no thaw cosplay for you huh no, gosh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> However, I gotta ask, the leader of the Thals, mm -hmm. I, it, he looks very much like the Doctor, and I swear I know this actor. 
Who is he? Apparently he played the Sheriff of Nottingham in some version of Robin Hood. Um, I'm not really familiar with him myself. That's just something I got from one of the DVD commentaries is that at the time he was well known as playing the Sheriff of Nottingham in some version of Robin Hood from the 60s. I mean, I know Britain has like four actors and they just cycle through all the parts. <laughs> oh, we should look him up on IMDb later. I'm actually doing that right now while we talk. <laughs> no, okay. Yeah. Temesis is his name. Okay. Um, we're in season one. Hello, Daleks. There you are. The escape. Temison. Alan Wheatley. I swear I know him from somewhere. Anyway, we can keep talking while I just scroll okay. through here. Well, yeah, I mean, you can always <laughs> click on his IMDb and see if he's... But I mean, if he was a prominent actor, I mean, I know I've seen several British movies, you know, from the 60s, so he could have been in anything. Indeed. So, because Susan brought an extra batch of drugs, the Daleks did let them keep them, so she gives them to... Oh, no, you can't go past and just not mention this. One of the women of this of this tribe of Thals, because I don't know what else to call them, <laughs> she's like, first of all, she mentions that she doesn't have an opinion, and then later, when the dude hands Susan the medicine, the woman's like, wouldn't it be better to give it to a man? Yeah. I was like, whoa, uh-uh, not okay, woman. I, I already don't like you. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to get to that scene a little bit later, because that's after the other Thals show up. But yeah, Dione, very obviously the jealous woman type character. But yeah, she does not like Alanon to talk to any other women. Mm -mm. <laughs> Don't like her. Yeah. My favorite thing from that scene, though, is Ganatus, which is like a kind of jokey Thal. Mm -hmm. And Alanon says, we're all working to the same ends. And then Ganatus says, there's a double meaning for you. <laughs> It's like, oh my god, this is supposed to be a kid's show, people. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, it's from kid's heads, you know that. <laughs> well, I thought that was a hilarious joke. Because he's talking about, like, why, you know, why is Dione so angry? Because we should all be working together. We're all working towards the same ends. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, gotta love the double entendres. <laughs> so, yeah, so Susan's giving the anti-radiation stuff to everybody. But she wants to help the Thals, and then we find out the Daleks are spying on them with a camera in their room, and then a Dalek comes in and basically says, hey, come, we want to help the Thals too, and so she goes out with them. Oh, and before that, she explained that the reason why the Thals are coming is because the rains that usually come every few years haven't come, and so their crops are all dying, and so they need a new food support, uh, source. Mm -hmm. And the Daleks ponder when they're watching that on the camera, like, oh, we just let them die and then one of the dogs is like nah they might still find a way to survive let's just try to lure them in here so we can just kill them be sure let's be sure about it <laughs> right. so now you're starting to get the okay the daleks definitely we weren't sure about them but no that's pretty cruel so Oh, and I also liked the line, because, I mean, Daleks nowadays, or in a lot of stories that come later, not even just nowadays, they're very much just exterminate, exterminate, and they don't really do a lot of thinking. They're just basically mindless killing machines. I kind of like the idea that they're in this where they're kind of plotting and sneaky, and they talk about the fact that first they want to, like, feed the people from the TARDIS and let them sleep because they're like, you know, once they've eaten and once they've slept, we'll get them into a false sense of security and then we'll be able to trick them. Oh yeah, they were some coming up with some seriously intricate plans. Mm -hmm. I was not ready for that from the Daleks. Yeah. My favorite Dalek story, it'll take us a while to get to it, but it it's, it's in a few more seasons and they are so 
devious in that. I just love it. So this is my favorite kind of Daleks. So yeah, they, they bring Susan out. They have her write a letter basically to the Thals. And I like the fact that like, you know, cause they actually use the plunger arm. Mm-hmm. So they actually show that it is useful because Susan holds up like, the thing that she wrote on, which looks like a tablet or something, you know, like, but it's... It looks like a dry erase board type thing. Yeah, thank you. Yes, it's... Oh, a clip... I was trying to think of a clipboard, but without the clip. Because <laughs> it's hard like that. It looks like she's writing with, like, some sort of, like, Sharpie or something on it. Mm-hmm. And so she holds it up for the dogs to look at, and the dog puts his plunger out, and they obviously have a magnet in the plunger, but it, like, sticks right to the plunger. Oh, that was great. Yeah, that looked really good. Oh, yeah, they don't like laughter. Boy, do they not like laughter. Yeah, and I like that because then you're still getting, like, this idea of the Daleks are paranoid. This is our first inkling of, like, their, you know, their mindset of being, like, these creatures that are just trapped in a shell their entire lives and the sort of paranoia because they're instantly like what is that sound you're making you know like they are freaking out just because of the sound of, of her laughter mm-hmm. because they pronounce her name funny and so yeah i like that i thought it was a nice touch so just to mention a little bit about temesis who's their leader that you were talking about before like he's like super optimistic mm-hmm. he's a bit of an idealist yeah, because his whole idea is, hey, you know, we used to fight, but, you know, it's been a long time, and if we're reasonable, I'm sure we can all come together, you know, and we find out, I can't remember if it's something Susan says or something that the Thals mention while they're talking together, is like, the Thals have become completely pacifist. They don't fight for any reason anymore because they know that war led to the destruction of the planet, and so they are completely peaceful. I don't know. I think Chica in the Thals is not exactly as peaceful or pacifist as people would like to think. <laughs> I am fairly certain she would she would brain Susan if, <laughs> if caught Susan talking to her man again. Maybe. Maybe. So then, okay, I love this fake fight that <laughs> the people from the TARDIS stage, because they're like, they know the Daleks are watching them, because even Susan sees the monitor when she's writing the letter where they're watching them and so they do this fight of ian's like oh the daleks are horrible and the doctor's like why are you were you saying bad things about the daleks i really like them but he's saying it like so like you're a bad actor kind of thing right like, <laughs> and it's so put on but then they like start like fighting with each other and like susan like, jumps on ian's back and there's this whole thing but then they get kind of close to the camera and then like susan just like grabs it and yanks it out of the wall <laughs> Oh, it was great. The, the fight was so silly. I mean, the Daleks, how are they ever going to know? Yeah, I mean, even the Daleks, though, when they're like, did it break accidentally? Like, no. <laughs> it was in there really firmly. They had to do this <laughs> deliberately. So they're not fooling anybody with that one. But the Daleks decide not to kill them because they don't know if they'll be useful later. That happens a lot so far. Yeah. Cave people, Daleks. Mm-hmm. They might be useful later. Let's keep them around. Yeah. It's a good thing for them. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that, that's the only thing keeping them alive at this point. <laughs> right. So then they're trying to figure out, like, what, what can we do to get out of here? What can we do about the Daleks? And that's when Ian sort of has the brain flash of, hey, what is that coat? Su- oh, Alanon gave Susan her coat, or his coat, to help her keep warm. And so they have it in the cell with them. And so he kind of feels it and is like, hey, this is like an insulating material. And then they realize that the, oh, but before that, realize that the floor is how the Daleks get their power. It's through static electricity. 
And that, that is where I found out why Daleks can't leave the city. And I'm like, that's very different from Daleks that I know that just mm. hovered right up a flight of stairs. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, that definitely changes. <laughs> so that's why they're thinking of something to insulate it. So then, yeah, Aladon's back. We're back to Aladon and Temesis. And Aladon's saying, like, hey, what do we do if the Daleks refuse to help us? And Temesis is just like, well, we'll just have to surrender to our fate. Yeah, he's very just chill with it. And the other guy's like, I wish I could be as chill with it as you are. And Temesis is like, eh. But then they get Susan's message. And so they're like, oh, yay, the dogs are going to help us. Because the Daleks say something like, hey, we'll give you food if you cultivate some land for us. Exchange, that kind of thing. Right. But then, yeah, they're back in the cell. They're watching as the Dalek comes in to bring their, their food to sort of figure out, well, how, how are we going to do this? And they are debating, like, well, how are we going to get around it? Because it's got that gun on it. And then they're like, maybe if we could blind it somehow. And that's when they're like, hey, Susan, like, let's see your shoe. And she has some mud on it. And Barbara makes a mud pie. Mm-hmm. They get the mud pie. So when the Dalek comes back, Ian puts, like, a piece of the camera underneath the door. So the doors, like, slide up, like, at an angle. And then they come back down again. And so when it tries to come back down, it can't come back down because there's something hard in the way. So when the Dalek comes in to investigate, they quickly hit it with the mud in the eye. And then they're trying to push it onto the coat. And I love the fact that the Dalek takes its plunger and smushes Ian up against the wall. But it doesn't ever fire. Nope. Nope. I don't know why. Also, (laughs) I still want to know, how did Barbara even get knocked over? Like, that Dalek was not moving very fast at all. Barbara just suddenly ends up on her butt on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. Also, oh man, the Dalek screaming. It was panicked. Yeah. I mean, I was like, I actually felt sort of bad for it. Yeah. It sounded so scared. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I mean, again, that's that sort of paranoia to the Daleks that, you know, you get that sort of like fearful, like angry and fearful at the same time thing that they that they do with the voices. And I think that works really well. But yeah, so they get it on top of the coat and it shuts down. And then here comes one of the best scenes to me with this, when they open up the head part of the Dalek, which apparently just has a simple latch that you can just undo. I don't know why it's that easy, but you know. And let's not forget that they start to open it and then sent the women out into the hallway. <laughs> right, yes. Because apparently it was going to be too terrifying for them. Yes. But the look on the Doctor and Ian's faces, I love It was that. in horror. Yes. Yeah, because again, they were never, with the stuff they had available then, going to make something that looked nasty enough. So they totally left it up to everybody's imagination of what in the world is this thing. Because then, yeah, Ian takes the coat and he pushes it down in to wrap around whatever's there. And they pull it out and push it over to the side. Yeah, but just leave it in the corner. Yeah, just leave it in the corner. (laughs) And then Ian gets inside the Dalek. And Ian's now wearing a Dalek suit. <laughs> right. Well, I love the fact... I mean, this whole thing is so silly, because it's like, how do you even know, like, what that will do? What it's even like in there? This is your plan. Like, we're going to sneak out as a... You know, I'm going to sneak out pretend I'm a Dalek. And it's like... <laughs> and even when they start off, he's like, I don't know how to operate any of this. <laughs> nope, they have to push him. <laughs> I know. And I'm like, yeah, the Daleks aren't going to notice that the Doctor is pushing. <laughs> You know, it's just, oh, it's so bad. But yeah, his vo- the voice is the only thing that works. He, he talks, and as his voice comes out, it has that sort of, you know, Dalek quality to it. They still tell him to sound more like a Dalek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, and then we go back just to see in the cell as they leave that like there's just like a claw that comes out from the coat. But that's all we'll see for years and years of what it looks like inside a Dalek is just a little claw. Really? Because yeah. I, I kept hoping that, man, I was hoping that in the last three episodes of this arc that there'd be a little bit more than just the claw. No, I really think it was a less is more kind of thing from them. Or also it could be because apparently this was terrifying. <laughs> Apparently there were, was, there were concerned parents <laughs> calling it a claw. So. But not the first time, though, that Doctor Who will be criticized for being too scary, but at the same time also be at its most popular. <laughs> Take that for what it is, but, you know, I kind of fall in the category of kids like to be frightened, so as long as you don't make it too crazy disturbing, it's okay. I mean, as a kid, I did watch Return to Oz, and it was a secret of Nim. Oh, Return to Oz. I love that movie. I love Secret of Nim, too. (laughs) I have so many nightmares that involved things from Return to Oz. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Yeah, see, my wife is a huge fan of the original Wizard of Oz. That was never really big for me. You know, I've seen it. It was like, okay, but, you know, that movie was never big for me. Loved Return to Oz. Mm Mm-hmm. It was so dark, but in a good way. <laughs> Have you rewatched it as an adult? Because it's still just as terrifying. Yeah, no, I did. I mean, it was a few years back now, but yeah, so I did. Because my wife had never seen it. And so I was like, oh, you love Wizard of Oz. We got to watch Return to Oz. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's the uh, end of part three. And now we're on to episode four, Ambush. Yeah, now we get all the action. Yeah. So I think they realized how stupid the whole Ian being pushed thing was because suddenly in part four, Ian's like, oh, I worked it out. I can control this thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I I love Ian's trying to do like the best bluff check on the Dalek that they encounter. He's like, Mm -hmm. I have been ordered to transport the prisoners by the council. And I'm like, how do you even know there's a Dalek council, Ian? (laughs) You know, you're just making this up. It's because he rolled, it's because he rolled a 20 on his bluff. (laughs) Well, the Dalek isn't having any of it. I mean, the Dalek is kind of like, uh, I'm going to check this. But then Susan tries to run away. So she distracts it. And she gets herded with plungers. Right. She gets herded with plungers. (laughs) But this is one of my arguments for the whole idea that Susan is brave when she's near technology. She's only scared when she's out in places that are wild. You mean like the petrified forest out there? Yeah, like the petrified forest or back when they were in the caveman stuff. Because here it's like, she's not scared of the Daleks at all. Not like Barbara is and not like the rest of them are acting like. And she even winks at them. Like when the Dalek is like, stop, you know, and she, you know, this was, you know, her way of just being like, yeah, I distracted it. (laughs) She's totally amused by them. Uh Uh-huh. So this is why I'm saying, you know, there's a little more to Susan than people give her credit for. I think it's more of she comes from a very advanced society. So the idea of something that's wild and uncontrolled is scarier to her than even like the worst evil stuff. As long as there's stuff around that she understands. There's my pitch for Susan. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, and then once they get in the elevator, the doctor, well, it's a room just outside the elevator and the doctor breaks the door so that it stays shut. And when the Dalek calls the other Daleks and says, hey, the prisoners are moving, they're like, we didn't order that. And then when it realizes it can't open the door, they start cutting through Mm -hmm. to get at them. And at the same time, magnetizes the floor so that Ian can't move. Yep. 
poor Ian losing his Dalek suit. Yeah, so they're trying to get him out, but the latch is stuck. And so they're fighting with it, and Ian just tells them, go. Like, there's no point in us all dying, just go. And so they get in the elevator and leave, and we just see the Dalek shaking as Ian's trying to, like, open it from the inside. The one thing I like about the elevator bit, I don't know if you noticed it, the floors are in binary. I hadn't noticed it, but that is fantastic. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's it's one, you know, one zero, one one, then one zero zero, you know, et cetera. So oh yeah, gosh. I liked that, that it was in binary. So again, trying to convey like this is an alien culture. They think differently than we do. So they send the elevator back down for Ian once they get to the top. And once they break in, you just see them blow away the Dalek that's sitting there. Mm -hmm. And so they give you this nice, did Ian die? Moment. But then, like, the Dalek, like, it collapses inward and there's nothing in there. Right. You're you're like, okay, cool. Everything's fine. (laughs) Right. So he got out just in the nick of time. And so, yeah, Ian gets up. And then the Daleks get the elevator come back down. So he's on the top floor, but they're going to come in and... And so then they look out the window that they're, because they're like up in a tower now, and they see through the window that the Thals are coming into the city, and they realize, oh no, they're coming into a trap. We need to warn them. I mean, of course it's an ambush. You could smell that ambush from the last planet we were on. (laughs) Well, the problem is Temesis is such an optimist. (laughs) It doesn't matter. And Susan doesn't take the Daleks seriously yet. Mm Mm-hmm. So they try to open this door that's there. And I love this. It's like a door. It looks like it's completely sealed shut. I'm trying to get their fingers, like, around it to just pull it open. Oh, yeah. Ian delivered the worst line ever. I can get my fingers in it. Oh, God, Ian, please, no. This is a good show. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, that's almost as good as we're all working towards the same ends. (laughs) So yeah, but then then we finally get the Daleks saying exterminate, because when they're getting into the elevator, once it comes back, they're like, we will exterminate them, or something like that. They say exterminated, we want, they they should be exterminated. I was like, ooh, there's the line. Right, yeah, they don't quite say exterminate, like, just like a, like a thing, but yeah, they use the word exterminated. And so they're coming up, so when they realize the Daleks are coming back up, there's apparently a piece of Dalek sculpture <laughs> sitting in this room that they're in. I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> and Ian decides to leave the doctor to push this door open. And while he goes, grab the sculpture with the women and they push it into the elevator. Because the elevator door they doesn't have doors. It's just completely open. And so they're able to push it into the shaft and it smashes into the elevator and stops Alex from getting up to them. And somehow, while all that's going on, the doctor has pried open the door with his fingers. <laughs> Man, that radiation medicine that totally, like, gave him strength. <laughs> right. It's like Popeye. <laughs> so then even Aladon saying to Temesis as they're coming into the city, the Daleks probably thought we were dead until just recently, and don't you think maybe they were unhappy when they found out we're alive? And Temesis is like, no, no, you know, I'll speak to them. It's going to be fine. I'm unarmed. There's no better argument against war than being unarmed. <laughs> oh, so bad. I know. Even Alamon's kind of like, uh, that only works if everybody feels the same way. <laughs> kind of thing so as the the TARDIS crew gets to the bottom floor or the ground floor 
Susan's like, let's go warn the Thals. And Ian's like, no, just let me go. This is one time when it makes sense. Let me do this. And you guys go back to the TARDIS because it'll be a lot more dangerous if there are more of us. And so after an argument, Ian goes off and the rest of them go back to the TARDIS. The other thing I noticed at this point, I, I don't know if it was there all the time. And I just noticed it this time because I've watched this one before is that the Dalek doors have this Pac-Man symbol on them. I was wondering about that. <laughs> yeah, it's this circle with, like, you know, a triangle taken out of it. And I'm like, what's with the Daleks and Pac-Man? <laughs> I mean, why not? Yeah, well, it is a good game. <laughs> it's a fun game. So then Temesis, there's, there's a room that the Daleks have set up. There's lots of food everywhere. There are these weird rolls that look like toilet paper. Okay, it wasn't just me because I'm sitting there going, so that's who's hoarding all the toilet paper recently. <laughs> that's like, like, this this is strangely topical. <laughs> it was like toilet paper and food. Talking about the scientists and the philosophers fighting against everybody else and now talking about how, like, uh, hoarding all the food and toilet paper... <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, Temesis comes up. He makes this big speech about how, oh, yeah, kumbaya, let's all come together. <laughs> and my problem with this scene is that Ian actually shows up just as Temesis is starting his speech. And he just stands there like, Ian, it's okay in this sense to interrupt somebody. You know, that's normally rude, but, you know, you don't have to let him finish his speech to yell out, it's a trap. But that's what he does. British manners, man. British manners. (laughs) So yeah, he yells out it's a trap, but the Daleks are already there, and so they kill Temesis. Uh, There's chaos, everybody's running anywhere. But there's a really good effect here, where Ian jumps behind a wall as the Daleks are shooting, and the imagery is basically like the Daleks shot the wall instead, and they do this really cool effect that looks like the paint's like peeling off the wall from like this blast hitting it. Uh, that was really well done. I liked that. I thought that was really cool. It kind of told me exactly how dangerous that ray was. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, that's the other thing we didn't mention, because they did use it already when Ian got paralyzed, is that the way they show the effect at this point, because they don't have very advanced effects, is when fire, like, the screen goes negative. Mm-hmm. Which I always like the look of that. I think that that looks really cool. I mean, obviously, the ray, you know, they go to a ray later on, but I like the whole everything goes negative because that sort of gives you that imagery of something really bad just happened. <laughs> I always think of that Star Trek original series episode with, like, the guy from the antimatter universe, and he's negative, and he fights the version of him from the positive universe. Yes. But, yeah, oh, yeah, that might not. It looks like toilet paper rolls mixed in with the <laughs> Okay, so my note actually just says, is that a pile of toilet paper and random balls? (laughs) Hey, that's how they roll on Scaro. Literally. (laughs) All the pun intended with that. Well, yeah, the Thals are like, hey, we just marched from this plateau that we live on, and man, we could really use some toilet paper, (laughs) because Petrified Jungle doesn't have anything comfortable to use. (laughs) I mean, you don't want skid marks in what appears to be very white clothing. (laughs) So yeah, the Daleks are running around, Thals are running around, then we cut to the Doctor, who's talking with some of the Thals that are still back there, and inspecting, like, the history that they have, and he's trying to work out where Scarrow is. And apparently playing Settlers of Catan with those (laughs) weird tiles. Yeah, but he they have, like, some, like, maps of the stars and whatnot, so he's trying to, like, basically fix their position. 
And so then the Thals are coming back now to the other ones, and we find out that other than Temesis, the Daleks basically just killed one other guy. And it's kind of like, okay, that was really ineffective then. <laughs> <laughs> they lured everybody into the city, and then they killed two people. Yeah, they could have done better. Right, because I'm like, all right, so the Daleks were in that room, waiting to pop out once, you know, the Thals came in, but... It's like, why didn't they surround them from the back while everybody was waiting for Temesis to finish his speech? Because that way they could have got them all like grouped in there and just killed all of them. And it doesn't matter if Ian yells out a warning or not, they're all trapped. I mean, it does make me wonder how long it's been since the Daleks have encountered any of the Thals. I mean, if it's been that long, maybe they just don't know. Why. But then again, I don't know the life cycle, si- like that life cycle of a Dalek at this point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't think they ever say really how long one lives, you know, on its own. I mean, we do find out though in discussion. We see that the Doctor has a picture of what the Thals looked like, and they were the warrior race. Mm-hmm. They did not show us the picture of what the dolls had looked like, and I really wanted to see that one. But they mention it's been long enough that there were horrible mutations from the neutron bombs and everything, but it's been long enough that the Thals went through those mutations and have come back around to this, but the Daleks haven't. Mm-hmm. It's like they're still stuck in that phase. Yeah, and at a different point, they said that the war was 500 years ago, and so that seems really quick to go be mutated and then back again, but, you know, whatever. Especially into perfect blonde-haired, blue-eyed... <laughs> right. <laughs> Those were very selective neutrons. Right, it's kind of a mixed message here. It's an anti-Nazi story, but our good guys are all blonde-haired, blue-eyed, so... (laughs) What are we trying to say? Well, at least our two lovely companions are not, as far as I can tell. Right. Yeah, I have no idea what their eye colors are, but yeah, their hair is obviously dark. So yeah, I mean, the point about may the Daleks have forgotten how to really fight well, maybe. Uh, (laughs) They don't do strategy anymore. I mean, the problem really, though, behind the scenes was that they only had four Daleks. (laughs) They do a really good job of shooting it so that it looks like there's a lot more Daleks, but really all that they had was four. So you can never have more than four on the screen at any one time. I had no clue. That's how well they did it. Yeah, no, no. I mean, they do a really good job. But yeah, it's, again, days for the show. So they don't have much of a budget. And so they they get four Daleks. (laughs) And so, yeah, then Aladon's sitting and pondering because he's now the leader with Temesis being dead and he's like man if I just understood why the Daleks hated us then I could work something out and Ian's basically the one that says no actually it's pretty simple it's stupid but it's just you know a dislike for the unlike I mean he's not wrong it's a very human thing and he knows it Mm. I mean heck he's been through that right no exactly like that's why I was saying everybody making the show at this point has lived through World War like even if they weren't fighting it or were too young to fight in it they all lived through World War II, and so even the characters lived, you know, Ian and Barbara lived through World War II, so it's, that's all filtering into that. Mm-hmm. I always feel like that's one of, like, the more powerful messages in fiction. You know, I was a huge X-Men fan, you know, as, you know, I guess I kind of still am, but, you know, <laughs> especially as a teenager, and it's such a basic idea, but at the same time, it's still a problem. I mean, you fear what's different. Right. And so this is where we kind of get the whole idea of what the Daleks are kind of solidified as they're this race of guys that just hates everything different than themselves. So at one point they're like, well, what, do you think we should fight them? And Ian's like, yeah, I kind of think it's going to be inevitable. And they're like, ah, pff, you don't know anything about us. You know, it's not gonna, we're not going to fight. And then Barbara kind of wonders, you know, when he, she and Ian are talking about it afterwards, 
are they really pacifist or has it just been so long since they've needed to fight that they just don't realize that they'd be willing to do it? And so, yeah, that's kind of like where we leave that section of it. But then the doctor's like, hey, you know, we should get going. And, you know, Barbara like, man, but we want to, you know, the falls, you know, we need them because they really need to learn how to fight. And the doctor's like, not my problem. Who cares? Not my problem. And like, okay, Chesterton, give me that fluid link. <laughs> I mean, if ever there was somebody who seemed to really enjoy that prime directive, right. it's the doctor. That's right. <laughs> Well, and that is, I mean, to bring in one element from later on, that is supposed to be one of the main Time Lord tenets is to never interfere, just to observe what's going on. And so it seems like the Doctor at this point hasn't fully left all that behind and is still kind of in the mode of, I just want to see stuff, but I'm not sure I want to get involved in any of it. I mean, I got to get all sciencey at the moment because every scientist still knows that just the simple act of observing a thing changes the thing. Just <laughs> saying. Yep. You, the quantum level. <laughs> you have changed it. But yeah, this is where Ian realizes that, oh no, the Daleks took the fluid link. <laughs> you have to go back. Yep. So yeah, this, this this I think is one of the cliffhangers that works really well, and that's why, I don't know, because this one was so long, seven parts, my PBS station actually did leave this one as two separate chunks, it did these four as one, and then it did the next three as one, so instead of editing it all together as a single movie, so I feel like this is sort of like the natural stopping point for this one, and it's a really good cliffhanger, because it's like, this really forces, you know, because at this point, there's no reason why any of them would stay and fight the Daleks. The Doctor is very selfish. Ian and Barbara just want to get home. So they can sort of mope about, hey, you know, I hate the idea that the Thals are just going to die off. But at the end of the day, they would leave. And it's like, no, we kind of can't. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that is where we'll pick things up next time. I'm excited because I haven't watched anything past that. I'm just waiting until after we recorded this to go through the next ones. Okay. Yeah, so we do our discussions and everything as we go through, but I do have a few things that I just want to check in on, you know, each time. So what did you think about our four regular characters this time and their interaction? And are you getting more like, kind of in sync with them? Are they still bothering you? Or, you know, how do you how do you feel about them? Susan's still a little annoying, but she grew on me a bit more this during these four episodes. Mm-hmm. Ian and Barbara's, like, attachment to each other is, seems to be definitely growing, you know, just even if it's only because they're to the situation together. Mm -hmm. The doctor's still a crotchety old selfish man. <laughs> well, yeah, the whole problem is because he wouldn't let them say no, you know, when he wanted to go to the city. So oh, yeah. it's like, I'll sabotage everything my way. Master manipulator right there. Uh-huh. But um, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I, I like their interactions together. I feel like they're growing into their characters more. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, as we get further on, you'll get to the point where writers have actually watched the show, so <laughs> things start to... Well, no, I mean, it's just because th nothing had aired yet when right. they wrote this one. So, you know, because they were only about, like, six weeks ahead of the episode, so, I mean, you get to a point where well, the next few stories, where the writers that are writing these have seen some of the early ones, and so things start to kind of you know, converge, but at this point, Terry Nation's writing having no clue other than just some character descriptions, and so we're still getting a lot of development for the characters, because 
he's got to sort of set things down and be like, hey, how do these people all relate to each other? And one of the comments that I read recently when I was just looking through some stuff about this story was, in the first story we have where everybody's got all these disagreements and everything, but in this story it seems like they're each fitting into a role a little better. Where like even Susan's got the thing, she's young, she's healthy, she's able to go and get the drugs when the rest of them need it, and so that's like something that she can do. So she's not just like a hanger-on that's just there to be upset about things or worried about things. So everybody's starting to get their niche in the group. So yeah, I think that everybody is getting fleshed out a good deal more in this one. And like I said, like even the doctor, I like that enthusiasm he has for exploration, even if he is still really like <laughs> a jerk about making sure that it's like, we're all going to do things my way. <laughs> so we talked about fall fashion, oh, and I know you don't like Dione, but what do you think about the falls? Yeah, no, the, I think that most of them have forgotten what fighting even is, except for Dione, that, that Chica. Mm. Oh no, she's got it. I think she could like lead those people into battle. <laughs> I don't even like I her. This. I love you know, you know, of all the things I've read over the years, I don't think anyone has been talking about this story has really like made much of Dione, and I love that you've just like zeroed in on her and then like, oh yeah. I can't <laughs> she's help gonna it. cut someone. She's got like the <laughs> best resting bitch face i've ever seen because she's there because it's like what do you think about this i have no opinion of Caroline's, and and then she's talking about how you're gonna give it to her you'd be better off giving it to a man but you can tell in her face and voice that oh no you you put a weapon in her hand she is totally gonna go to town on those daleks yeah uh, but the thals in general um yeah, I I felt bad. Such an idealist. Oh, you need to be more like Commissioner Gordon from Batman. You need to be sort of an idealist, but still be very much a realist about your situation. I love that you just used Commissioner Gordon as like the paragon <laughs> of idealism. <laughs> that is great. He is though. He knows what Gotham could be. He knows what he sure. he knows what people can be, but he's also very much a realist of what it actually is. Yeah. Did you watch the show Gotham? No, I have not seen it oh, yet. Okay, okay, okay. No, it's just curious because that's that's very much the character from that from okay. that show. And Daleks. What do you think about the Daleks in their first few episodes? I love them so much more. <laughs> Again, they're they're my favorite Doctor Who villain. I don't know mm. why. I really don't. Maybe it's because they're one of the first ones that actually you really come in contact with when you start with the Ninth Doctor. Uh huh. Because I can't count Cassandra. I can't. I can't count a piece of skin, Evelyn. <laughs> oh, God, I was so disappointed by that. <laughs> but the Daleks, man, they have always intrigued me. And they're scary. And I don't know why a robot that looks like a salt shaker with a plunger and a whisk is scary. But it is. <laughs> no, no, I get it. When I was a kid and I was watching Doctor Who, like the Cybermen were totally my thing. Mm. But that was what I was like, man, these guys are scary. But no, I can get it. I mean, especially now that I've, you know, I'm more into the lore and everything and I get a lot more of like the importance of Daleks and everything. It's yeah, I, I like this and I like how they're depicted in this and I like how it isn't just they just run around going exterminate because mm-hmm. I like I said, I love those clever Daleks. I like it when they think. So another thing that just to tell you about what was what happens because of this. So this starts, and I swear to you, this is real. This starts Dalek mania in England. Really? Yes. So this uh, story aired over Christmas, 
the following year, because obviously it was too quick when this was airing to know that it was going to be popular, the following year, there were Dalek toys, there were Dalek, like, plastic costumes that kids could put on. Oh my gosh. You know, that were like, like, this basically this plastic sheet that was in a Dalek shape that kids would drape over themselves and stuff. They had a record. A record. (laughs) That was like people singing about Daleks. I need a copy of that. <laughs> it was like Dalek merchandise just went all through England, and it was this craze that lasted for a year to two years of just Dalek everything. Oh my gosh. I should confess now that I did watch a couple of these episodes while holding Dalek. <laughs> That's awesome. I have a talking Dalek. Mine talks too when you squish him. <laughs> Oh, mine's more like, it's it's bigger than a normal action figure, but it's, it's I don't know, it's probably like six inches tall or something, mm-hmm. and it's got a button on it, and you press the button and it talks, it says like three or four different things. I do have a Dalek bottle opener that says exterminate whenever you open a bottle. <laughs> That's great. And this is what's funny is because the, the, you know, this guy, Terry Nation, he creates the Daleks to do this hugely popular thing, but they don't have any real existence outside of Doctor Who. Like, you can get some merchandise or whatever. And so, for the rest of his life, I kid you not, he kept trying to figure out a way to spin the Daleks off to their own thing (laughs) so that he could, like, have more control over them. Like, he pitched a Dalek TV series that was all about Daleks running amok and, like, the people that were trying to fight them and, you know, just all this crazy stuff, so. I wish you could see the excited (laughs) expression on my face. My jaw just dropped. I'm like, I would have watched that so much. (sighs) So, we'll talk more about that as we go through things. But, uh, yeah, Daleks, Daleks, that's what made Doctor Who popular was the Daleks. I could see it. I I mean, they were pretty awesome. And... they're different. They're scary because they are so different. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about these four episodes overall? I really like them. If I was going to go on a... What, what do we scale on last time? I th- it was out of 10, I'm pretty sure. Uh, these would at least be up there around a 9 for me because I am in love with the Daleks. I loved finding out more about them. I loved how scary that they were in this. Yeah, I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. I think this is really good. Like I say, I really like the exploration. Some people talk about how the old Doctor Who stories, they're longer, and they say that they drag, but I kind of like the whole mystery aspect of it. Where are we? What's going on? Give some evidence, make the people think and speculate and stuff like that. I really like that part of it. So that's fun, and then leaving the Daleks kind of ambiguous for a while is good. And I think that the four main characters are still really doing a great job selling the fear of being in this completely alien environment and getting through it. And that makes it more exciting, too. So, um, yeah, this is a really good one. Oh, wait, I got to knock half a star off my review. Take it down to 8.5 for Thal fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not every... (laughs) You know, Doctor Who kind of benefits from the fact that it was attached to the BBC when they're doing historical stories because they've got so many costumes they can pull from. When they're doing sci-fi stories and they have to make it all up, it's not always really good. (laughs) So just going to warn you right now that 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 could come up again. Some of our sci-fi outfits aren't really the best. They'll all get ranked against what I've just seen. This is my baseline right here. Yeah, my wife has done a lot of cosplays on various classic Who things, but yeah, the Thals have never come up. (laughs) 
they're never going to come up. Now I really want to see a cosplay group at Dragon Con of balls. I really do. <laughs> I don't want to be in it. I'm sure, I'm sure you could get somebody to do it if you if you pitched it to the right people. But all right, so yeah, I mean this this wraps up this episode. Next time we're going to talk about episodes five, six, and seven of the Daleks, which starts with the expedition. Of course, is episode five and. Oh God, man! I, I, you know, I. <laughs> it's funny because I just think about all the things that we're gonna get through, and I'm just so excited. And I'm like, man, I wish we could faster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to Japan. No, I know, I know, I know. We don't lose any time there. So, no, it has more to do with my bandwidth than anything because you know <laughs> I've got so much stuff going on that it has more to do with you know do I have time to watch and take notes? Because it's like, yeah, I can eat while I eat. Exactly. I can't take notes and watch while I eat. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, this is so much fun, Juliet. I'm really glad that we're doing this. I'm glad that I'm helping you relive this and discuss it with somebody who's never seen it. Oh, I know. And well, and I like the fact, well, the other fun thing, and I think I've mentioned this before, is like, because you're a fan of things like Dark Shadows, you're okay with the staginess and the sort of the older television style and everything like that. Cause that's the thing when I listen to podcasts or see like people who get into or start try watching older doctor who now, all of them is just like, Oh man, the pacing is so slow. Like, Oh man, this is so stagey or, you know, I can tell where the sets are and you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, you gotta ignore all that. <laughs> Just let it go. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Dark Shadows, classic old Western TV series. You know what? I'm cool with all of it. Yeah. One spoiler I will give you because it's not really a spoiler. Doctor Who does a Western. Wait, I didn't know that. That's amazing. <laughs> we'll get there in a little bit. But, all right, so, yeah, I guess uh, this is the part that I'm the worst at is the signing off part, but... <laughs> uh... Juliet, is there anything that you want to, I mean, I guess, you know, there's not a whole lot going on right now, but you no know, coronavirus and we're all under quarantine, but anything that you wanted to plug or anything that you wanted to talk about? Well, I, I do want to say that if you are still under quarantine, or even if you're not, and you just want to have some fun singing some karaoke with me, hop on the Smule app. Yeah, it's, it's actually S-M-U-L-E, Smule, and find me as Rumi Elf, R-U-M-I-E-L-F, and sing all the karaoke with me, because there's even anime songs on there that we can <laughs> sing together. And Nathan knows that because I sent him one. Yes, yes, she was singing Fujigi Yugi theme, so yes, that was awesome. <laughs> I'm such a dork. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, it's just the generic. I'm also the host of the 42 cast. Check out the 42 cast at 42cast.com. You can also go to tplit.com and search for 42 cast merch because, as Juliet knows, <laughs> you can get a wonderful t shirt from T Public. And you should see that picture. It's an amazing selfie. Yep, I posted it on the uh, 42 cast Facebook page. And, uh, and yeah, they sell a bunch of other things too. You can get mugs, stickers, pins, cell phone cases, all kinds of stuff. So you check that out at tpublic.com. Just search for 42 cast and come up. And I put a direct link on the uh, Facebook page for the 42 cast. So you can search there too. But yeah, that's it for this week. So this is Nathan. And this is Juliet. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Time Streams, a subsidiary of the 42Cast podcast. 
If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at everything at 42cast.com. Beginning music is Vortex, followed by Pulse Rock, both by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License. Ending music is Voltaic, also by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License. <laughs>